0: As we move towards bringing children back to school, we must ask who was worst affected by the pandemic and why. Decoding Exclusion, an interview series by the Vithi Centre for Legal Policy, aims to discuss the various facets of the problem of exclusion in education in India. With a range of experts in the field of law, policy and education, we examine evidence on new sites of exclusion and ways in which we can support children and their households as we bring them back to school. Welcome to Vidhi's Decoding Exclusion, an interview series where we break down the various facets of exclusion from mainstream education in India. I'm Nisha and I lead the Inclusive Education vertical at the Vidhi Centre for Legal Policy and in today's episode I'm in conversation with Madhuri Dhariwal. Madhuri is the Associate Director of Learning Platforms at Indus Action, a policy implementation organization working in the sectors of education, nutrition, livelihoods, maternal and child health among others. In today's conversation, we discuss how organizations like Indus Action try to address vulnerability through a focus on social security of households as a unit. We also discuss the challenges that the state faces in tracking and bringing back out-of-school children. I was especially excited to hear about some of the innovative practices that emerged during COVID-19, such as using Bluetooth to share educational content. Finally, we talk about the importance of partnerships with communities, with other NGOs, researchers and practitioners when working in the development sector, and what the role of researchers and organizations like ours should be in times of crises. There's a lot of insight from Action's various efforts in the field, and I hope you enjoy it. So with that, let's jump into the episode. Hi Madhuri, thank you so much for joining us for this um interview today Um, as you know we are at vidhi doing this um, interview series called decoding exclusion and in today's conversation we will be discussing um supporting the support system so to speak right so um, in some part we'll be talking about the role of the household and the role of the state um, in addressing the larger challenge of -of out-of-school children in india um, and specifically in the context of COVID nineteen. Uh, so, firstly, um, I'll introduce Madhuri to our audience. Madhuri Darival is the uh, associate director of CEO's office at Indus Action. Um, she's been at Indus Action for I think about four years now, but has been in the education sector for far longer. Um, so, you know, without further ado, Madhuri, I think we'd like to hear a lot more from you. Um, so, just to start off the conversation, um, the first question we wanted to pose was during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, Intersection did a lot of work in actually responding to the needs of households and children, um, you know, during the sort of uh, height of the pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about what this work entailed and who were the different kinds of stakeholders that you were working with during this time?
1: Sure. Uh, Thanks, Nisha. Thanks for having me here, first of all. And uh, congratulations on the report to Vidhi as well. So in this action, I'll also just give a very brief intro so that uh, everyone knows what is the work that we do primarily. So we're a policy implementation organization working to bridge the gap between law and action. So what that translates to in real life is that there are policies, uh, there are legislated rights that people have, there are schemes and policies created from that. uh, But there is a gap in them actually reaching the last vulnerable citizen who they're intended for. So that is the work that we do of ensuring that that implementation happens well, that all of the stakeholders involved in that ecosystem, starting from the government to the community, other civil society organizations, are made aware of their rights, Mm -hmm. are made aware of the policy, the processes that entail uh, the actual implementation, as well as then working on capacity building within that ecosystem. So plugging in tech where required, because Mm -hmm. tech is for us a means to an end and not an end in itself. So putting in technology where required, doing capacity building for understanding of the policy and the process as well as the technology. Mm -hmm. And within the community as well, building in sustainability measures. Uh, So we try working with an objective of uh, nobody becoming dependent on intersection, Mm -hmm. such that if we exit, then there is a vacuum in the ecosystem. So we try building in sustainability measures, uh, alongside our work in itself so be partnering with different people in the ecosystem or you know working in the capacity building and awareness bits that i was talking about currently in about 12 states across the country pre-pandemic were in 20 um, and major areas of work over these past almost 10 years now have been education maternal and child health mm-hmm. uh, nutrition as well as livelihoods and we're looking at a gamut of social security benefits and welfare uh, rights right now. Right. Coming to your question, you mentioned that during yeah. the pandemic, the work that we uh, were doing, we, when we realized that, you know, the news of the lockdown and uh, the pandemic hitting other parts of the world, like COVID-19 spreading mm. across the world came about, we realized very quickly, I think, the first realization was that the work which we were doing before that, which mm. was focusing on uh, Section 121C of the RT Act, Check and touch upon a little later, which is more the education part of our portfolio, yeah. as well as the child and uh, maternal nutrition and healthcare work. That would very quickly fall to the bottom of the priority order
2: mm. for
1: anyone and everyone, and possibly rightly so, because at that point there was uh, there was a bigger health risk out there, and we had to pivot very quickly to thinking, what are we going to do to mm. support uh, the families who we've been associated with. And at that point, by for seven years, and the second bit that was uh, very obvious, I think, was the entire migrant labor crisis that the country was uh, looking at. So, our role has always been one of a very systemic uh, player, where we've not had too many direct interventions Mm -hmm. on the ground, but we try working on systems change more so. So, with that lens in mind, we were trying to understand uh, how do we pivot really quickly to support the system in supporting these migrant laborers as well as um, other vulnerable populations so mm-hmm. there the first i think the first things we started doing was we looked into the database of families that we had who had connected to us through uh, our these the two portfolios i mentioned and we picked up a subset and we started just calling them we created like a template of what are these major areas that we want to look at so
2: yeah.
1: there is healthcare there is access to welfare entitlements, there is also, uh, and specific welfare entitlements that were targeted towards COVID. So right. there is there was the PMGKY, which is the Pradhan Mantri Gareep Kalyan Yojana, yeah. uh, And that was launched for like as a special package as well during COVID.
2: Hmm.
1: Do people have awareness of that? Can they get access to it, etc. Mm-hmm. And then looking at more immediate term things, do they have enough ration? Do they have access to immediate medicines that they need, etc. Uh, and this work we started doing across uh, the country with multiple states that we had uh, data of. So that was, I think, the beginning mm. of our work in about in from April 2020 onwards. Our major focus area and the key findings that we had was that across different states there were there was a different reaction, right? So unemployment mm-hmm. rates were growing definitely across yeah. the board, uh, which was sort of expected as well. But what that led to, like what that loss of income led to was then uh, loss in access to multiple other resources. Right. And so when we look at education from that perspective or children and how they were impacted, Mm. uh, they were one of the most neglected categories at the initial bits because uh, nobody, we we were in a lockdown, nobody was going to school, Mm. uh, healthcare was primary, etc. So yeah, so that section got, really neglected, I think was one of the first things that stood out to us.
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, across the board, because when once COVID hit, um, our focus sort of remained in education and largely on like sort of evidence gathering. And I think our main finding, which is definitely consistent with everyone else who did anything at that point, was that education within the household had been deprioritized in a very big way and really within you know the larger sort of development sector in India as well right because even funding which I mean that became a huge problem that funding itself sort of completely got um sort of deviated to these other sectors that were definitely and right like like you said rightly so more urgent at that point of time um so you know as you said you all sort of decided to change uh towards working towards like right-based um, awareness um, on specific entitlements that y'all felt were more urgent at that point of time? Is that something that Indus Action is continuing to do now? And I think you specifically mentioned, yes, the um, COVID-specific entitlements as well. But specific to children, what were the kinds of things that y'all were looking at?
1: Entitlements that I was talking about, some focused on women, some focused on children. And so... Yeah. Uh, some were DBTs, so direct benefit transfers. Others were, uh, you know, things in kind. So, for instance, extra ration being given in free ration, some areas, migrant workers. So, a lot of these indirectly were impacting children. Mm-hmm. So, when we're looking at access to food or access to healthcare, uh, that was where majorly where children were getting impacted. So, prenatal mm-hmm. care, for instance, right? Um, there is the food that goes through ICDS, um, yeah. To pregnant and lactating mothers. That was a specific focus area for us as well. Mm. Where we were trying to understand that is that ration delivery happening on time? Uh, are vaccinations and immunizations happening on time for mm. these mothers and their newborn children? And, you know, we realized very small things that came up, like something that an Anganwadi worker said, I can't carry 20 kilos of that Panjiri and on my back and yeah. kind of walk door to door. And which is why i have not just delivered right. in the past month. Oh, uh, and that was such a fixable problem right like easily fixable you yeah. get an auto and that goes in the um in those narrow lanes with that worker and that yeah. can get resolved but insights like those were really useful yeah and those were kind of feedback loops that we were trying to give back to governments where we are present in the states immediately right. Right. such that that was you know helping uh, there were multiple other instances where I mean Majorly pregnant and lactating mothers, I think became a focus for us because uh they were being, I mean, I'm I won't say neglected, but they did they were sort of more vulnerable at that point, fending for themselves and the child. And right. so we also looked at uh access to vaccinations hmm. for these mothers. Uh whether that should be or not be was a huge debate. yeah in, at that time. And so we were trying to work around that as well. Uh, generate awareness around it, but also get access to these mothers in hospitals, uh, make sure that they can get vaccinated safely, mm-hmm. go back or set up camps where somebody can come in or can it be done door to door, etc. Working mm-hmm. with hospitals on doing that. So some of that work was around uh, yeah, mothers and children. Apart from that, when we look at like the education sphere per se, I think the first few months, there wasn't
0: too much yeah. in
1: that sense of entitlement where education, because schools were shut, yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of efforts that were done uh, by state governments. Right. In those.
0: Okay. So, I mean, I'm definitely going to come to exactly that question next. Um, but just very quickly, so in your experience, because you are kept in touch with these households, you know, for a large part of the pandemic, right? And your, I guess your response or the COVID response, so to speak, um, sort of adapted to what you were finding on the field as well, right? So in that time, could you maybe tell us a little bit of did you see a point in time when households started to slowly try to bring back um attention onto the education of their children like how at what stage did that sort of happen right?
1: Most definitely. I think uh Nisha, you and I both don't have kids, but speak to anybody <laughs> who has a uh four-year-old who's been at home for a whole year and they're very quick to say that they wanted them back in school. So I mean, when you start talking to parents and, uh, you know, households, I think this was a very huge concern that came up because one, parents weren't used to staying with their children for that long, uh, right? They're just in terms of logistics for the household, managing a child, managing food, managing your, and you're also working from home at the same time, mostly. Or if you are to go out, then you're coming back home with that health risk to the child uh, during the pandemic. And so uh, there was one, I mean, there were two camps to this, right? The whole reopening of school versus not was again, a humongous debate. I think Twitter had a field day with it. But Mm -hmm. that was, uh, there were people who were anxious to send their kids back to school. One part was this whole logistics thing of what do we do with this child for like so long? Uh, but the more important bit I think was that these are very foundational years for uh, children's development right and not only like the academic skills that they're learning but also Mm -hmm. the socialization the soft skills that they pick up in school Mm -hmm. being with their peers with their friends around their teachers like all of that was going missing yeah Uh, and so that phenomenon of being a COVID baby was something that was very real, where children are not used to socializing anymore, not used to sharing what they have, the absolute increase in terms of devices, technology that they started using TV, mobile phones, etc. Because there was no other alternative for them Mm -hmm. at that point. So those factors were on this side of the camp, which really wanted motivated parents to be like, okay, can we reopen schools? Can they be done? And so I think a lot of efforts were taken there to maybe have schools on alternate days or you yeah, know, yeah. have different slots for classrooms etc mm-hmm. uh, and then there was the other side which was very scared for the health risk mm-hmm. uh, where and so there was that strong lobby of parents as well yeah. who did not want schools to reopen at all
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: because they were and because in children immunity is lower etc and so that fear of uh, covid spreading faster mm-hmm. and which did happen in a couple of schools I remember, yeah. I think, it was the first uh, instance where they had to then shut down schools again. If mm-hmm. I say like timeline, i sorry what you were asking earlier, but about three, four months into the pandemic mm-hmm. was when they started resurfacing again. So, okay. uh, April, May, June, we I don't think anybody heard any of that. And also, because summer holidays, uh, so June, right. and July, pretty much that, when the new session started and also the first wave kind of died down a little bit. Our lockdowns right. became less strict, you know, restrictions were lesser. I think people started wanting to get back to a more normal lifestyle whatever that word means but back to the way things were
0: okay okay so i mean because one of the things that we sort of were um you know trying to understand through our own research as well is that see because covid yes was and i hope a very, very exceptional thing that happened, right? And we're not expecting a COVID to ever happen again, um, and like touch wood and all. But um, <laughs> but one thing that we do have to sort of consider is that, say, for example, with like the climate crisis, right? We do know that the incidence of something like, um, you know, extreme weather conditions and things like that, especially in states that are already sort of vulnerable to it, um, that does already become like a, a thing that sort of hampers children being in physical schools right and then especially for households that are already vulnerable um in terms of employment and this and that in terms of investment um in a sense we almost need to be preparing households for the possibility of increased crises not hopefully at this scale but you know in in the you know in the extent in which it happens in their own state right so the obvious example that sort of jumps out to us is something like in orissa when you have extremely heavy rainfall and when i was say working in like Anganwadi's in orissa we would have like a curriculum that was designed for you know an academic year but actually because of rainfall the number of times schools closed down you were actually doing maybe one month less than what you had planned for right so given these kinds of things Um, as an organization that works so heavily on supporting the household, um, where do you think our focus needs to be for the most vulnerable households so that we can maybe offset some of the things that allow them to deprioritize, not allow them, force them to deprioritize education at the worst of times, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's very real, right? Like, I mean, the climate change crisis and also all of the natural disasters that a lot of our states see, so Odessa, you mentioned, but like all the coastal regions, cyclones, things like that, like that has been the case uh, forever. So we were talking of something called climate proofing our uh, policies and, uh, you know, so disaster proofing in a sense, if I can rephrase that, how do we do that for our overall work? So I think one example that I saw of this in like the education calendar, uh, particularly was taken up by I will get back to you with the exact name of the school and this thing. But what they did was they changed the calendar year mm-hmm. to be uh, around the farming season and uh, not according to the traditional calendar. Year. So they know yeah. that these these two, three months that children are not going to be in school because they're helping their parents possibly in the farms or, you know, at least the 9th to 12th grade students will possibly show up one day, not show up for three more days. Right. and that will hamper their education but right. and they might not need the winter break yeah. per se because they don't traditionally have a winter break in their like life cycle of uh, activities right and so can we just change the calendar mm. of activities around education and right. have it be more suited to a particular state where mm. you already know that there are uh, you know so maybe keeping something standardized like it starts in July and ends in March, for instance, mm. if that's what we want to do, but then the rest of the year there is scope for, uh, some amount of change within that and freedom in terms of exam schedules etc cetera, etc cetera, all of those right, things. right so yeah so that one example I found was really uh, you know useful in terms of supporting the families mm. but the other things that we look at and that is something of the work that we're trying to do right now as well is how else can we support the family yeah in instances of uh, any sort of a shock. So a shock like COVID, for instance, pushed about 240 million Indians back into poverty. Mm -hmm. And this is from a 2020 Oxfam report, right? If we have to sustainably keep them out, right? uh, then what is the method? And so something that we're trying right now is to look, uh, and and we call it power, which is portfolio of welfare entitlements and rights. Uh, But essentially, the idea is to converge on a family as a whole. Mm. And uh, to see where are their biggest gaps for that particular family right also what are parallelly the entitlements that the state is already providing as a social security net so since right. our work is very uh, you know welfare focused we're looking trying to look at uh, what are those uh, access to certain schemes so for instance mm-hmm. in education there are scholarships available right uh, there is, say a cycle given a bicycle given uh, to girls yeah. to make sure they are able to travel or within uh livelihood entitlements mm-hmm. for children of laborers so construction workers registered labor they their children have access to separate scholarships through the labor department right uh, so things like that like so that's education similarly yeah. maternity spread across women and child development health mm-hmm. all of these different departments they have access to different types of maternal and child uh, protection rights
0: right. as well
1: as teams entitlements that they have yeah so um How can we look at a family targeted as a whole and Mm -hmm. see, get them access to a bare minimum, a basic amount of welfare Mm -hmm. that they get access to sustainably over a period of a few years. And that's a Mm -hmm. hypothesis we have right now, which we're testing out to see that, you know, if they're supported for say three years in a row, does it help them move away from that cycle? Does it give them enough resources to know uh, where to access support
2: when required? Right, right
1: how can they do that by themselves eventually? Right. But uh, that's the idea for at least a minimum period of three years. How do we support a family as a whole? And uh, the idea of convergence, I think is very crucial to all of this because mm. what ends up happening is when we talk of uh, say education, health, labor, we're talking in silos, Yeah. right? It might be the same family, the same child that you need to target through all three of these, yeah. the same mother you need to speak to and get the same Aadhaar details eight times over. Yeah. But, um, How can we not do that for them? Right. Can we ensure that the state is collecting it only once?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And then depending on need, depending on where you see the family being placed, they're being provided those entitlements automatically. Mm. So how can the state become more uh, proactive in its approach to provide these uh, welfare measures to the families and the families also know how to ask for them. So like a demand supply side, both of it being balanced uh, in a way. Right. Uh, Along with that, I think some other aspects that we're focusing on, and particularly if I talk of uh, children per se, that we're working on, Mm -hmm. one uh, is sort of called RT plus in our current terminology. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is looking at dropouts from the RT section 121c groups. And we're trying to see why those children dropped out in the first case. Secondly, how can we prevent some of that? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Providing access to these entitlements to the family is one way to ensure that there is economic stability in the household, which is not forcing the child to drop out. Uh, The second is then also we we really thought that vocational education in the true sense of it does Mm -hmm. not always happen in our schools, uh, you know, really well. So if I can only see that there's either a science track or a commerce track, and I'm not a bright student enough, or I'm not interested in these. Right? I, sorry, I said that, but like, if I'm not interested in taking either science or commerce,
2: yeah,
1: a student like me, like I was yeah. not interested in the science or commerce. Mm-hmm. And when I took arts, it was like, are you serious? Like, why yes. are you doing that to yourself? Uh, but is that third option there? Right? Are we right. doing education well enough that there are skills being taught to children in mm. their uh, higher education? So, ninth to 12th grades essentially, mm-hmm. that can help them choose a pathway to uh, income, but also so to livelihood. It's right. also something that encourages them to stay in school and learn.
0: Right, right.
1: So, that is something that we're trying out right now as okay. uh, another measure. Apart from that, looking at like just the early grade, children, three to six year olds, Yeah. we're working on mm-hmm. a school readiness program. Because again, a realization that we had while doing our Section 121c work was that children from different backgrounds enter at very different levels into uh, formal schooling, right? Yeah,
2: absolutely.
1: basic things of the number of vocabulary words that you Mm -hmm. use Mm
2: -hmm. is very
1: different. The kind of languages you can speak, things you can identify, exposure to multiple things. Yeah. So how can we focus on that early grade learning? And how can parents and caregivers be part of that? Right. Because the child in those formative years spends maximum amount of time with like family, parents, caregivers. So how can we ensure that there is some amount of learning built in such that we bridge the gap a little? Yeah, We're still not saying that it's going to be the same level playing field, but how can we aim for that? At
0: least? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That
1: is another uh, piece. Apart from that, I think, uh, again, when we're talking of mothers and children, the maternal benefit. Uh, maternity benefit schemes that we work on. There's a gamut of them. So, Pradhan Mantri Matru Vandana Yojana is one PMMY. Yeah. Uh, Five thousand rupee DBT to the mother, but till the child is roughly about a year old is when they get the overall the money. So it is to focus on the mother's nutrition as well as the child's. Right. Uh, and that's another focusing on mothers and children, JSY again. So like multiple maternity benefit schemes.
0: Right, support. right. A oh, really important thing that you're sort of talking about right and especially what you first described of like supporting the household in their social security um like access to social security in, for a sustained amount of time um and I think what you're describing is maybe moving towards what they would call like a social registry right as far as the administrative efficiency piece is sort of uh, discuss but I think that is that is incredibly important because we know from literature that when there is instability in the household and there is uh, you know there are shocks that happen whether like a death of a family member or something much more sort mm-hmm. of universal like COVID it does sort of affect a family's ability to plan ahead and that affects their like aspirations for the child as well right so creating that kind of sustainability I think can be extremely empowering in the long term as well not just in terms of the day-to-day Educational decisions, um, and then yeah, that that also sort of ties into what you were describing about the uh, the climate responsive uh, kind of schedules, right? That that's incredibly interesting, and I think even something very relevant to something like the migrant labor crisis, even outside of COVID, right? And yeah. we do know that migrant children and I mean migrant households follow a certain kind of calendar over the course of a year, and can that be something that we actually look into when we're trying to address? Uh, this problem but so now sort of coming to what you had mentioned earlier that different states had already been you know or started putting in a lot of effort towards education and re- recuperating um, once maybe the first wave sort of died down um, given that again intersection works across so many different states I think you mentioned 12 currently um, so during COVID as well it might have been at least 12 so what what was your sort of experience there what were the kind of constraints that the states were facing, but also what were some of the measures they were able to take to kind of address this problem of out-of-school children and absenteeism um, and dropouts, you know, during that time?
1: I think just to start off, I guess it, the first um, point that i want to just put across is that the constraints are very different when it comes to talking about like state governments, uh, the scale at which they're operating, yeah. the nature of challenges, I think, changes a lot when we're talking from like a direct impact, can we ensure children in one school come to school versus uh, looking at the entire state and saying, you know, lakhs of children are out of school. What do we do about it? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So just keeping that at the back of backdrop of whatever I will talk off now mm-hmm. is really important because in those, I think the first few months, the number of innovations that happened around education across the country were tremendous, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, teachers, parents, administrators, educators at different levels, everybody was going through the same COVID crisis. So even as a teacher, if I'm at home, I still have my child as well to take care of possibly, along with ensuring that there are 30 children who are trying to pay attention to me on that screen and everyone speaking at the same time, uh, utilizing a technology I don't know how to use. Uh, For the first time I'm hearing of these words called Zoom and Google Meet, and I have no idea how to deal with all of that. And I'm supposed to deliver content that is effective that ensures children are also learning mm. and, you know, take care of their mental health, my mental health, all of it yeah. in the middle of that pandemic. So I think I, for one, am deeply appreciative of the work that education departments across the board have done mm-hmm. in both government schools and then private schools as well, where, you know, things have been taken up. So I'm yeah just upfront, like very appreciative of the efforts that have gone into at least trying to make sure that we're not just letting go and being like, sorry, we yeah. can't do anything. Uh, you know, there's nothing that's possible. Yeah. So, and if I talk of specific state initiatives, you know, different things that were taken up. So uh, in Chhattisgarh, I saw multiple initiatives. I'll talk of one or two. Uh, so Padhai Tuhar Dwar is one uh, that was taken in Chhattisgarh. That means education at your doorstep, essentially. And that spoke, that basically was... Uh, education like teachers etc reaching the school uh, reaching the child directly so how can education reach the um, child instead of the child coming to school because that was not possible at that point so again initiatives to record videos create an app train teachers at a massive scale on that app etc all of that happened something very interesting that I liked about the model here one uh, effort that was taken up was called bultu bol mm-hmm. uh, which is basically bultu is a play on the word bluetooth So there are areas where there is no internet connectivity. Uh Uh, And so how do you download content, right? How do you upload anything? And so wherever there is internet connectivity, you go download it and you can use Bluetooth to essentially transfer that uh, material later. And there's one person or one place where there will be material and you can then transfer it on just using Bluetooth. And uh, that was quite a hit in some of our rural tribal areas where there isn't as much internet connectivity available. Right. Uh, so Rajasthan state government, I think, had done a really good job in terms of their setting up their education. Um, again, this online system having the same, same route of like training teachers, etc. But everywhere, I think, there was some new innovation, something that was tried. Teachers going uh, using like bicycles and uh, vans to go to villages and then teach. Right. So some of those were systemized as well. You know, mm-hmm. like there were a fixed set of teachers who were doing that as part of the department. A lot of PD happening. So professional development happening across the board is something that I saw as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But what are major enabling factors, right? In a state, like there are efforts that different education departments were taking. Some things that I realized that everything is political Mm -hmm. in a way, right? Right. not a new realization, but something that just came back. No, oh, I know.
0: Uh, very, you remember it in a time of crisis and then it still surprises yeah, you sometimes. Exactly.
1: You know? So, like, everything was is political. but mm. And so it was sometimes very person-dependent. Mm. You know, if there was a really passionate, driven individual who wanted to make a difference, it would show. Yeah. And that would show through in the efforts in the state as well. I've seen people who've done rounds of the entire state during like the peak COVID times to ensure that every district has the resources it needs
2: right.
1: uh, to be able to continue education in the formats that they are. Mm. Uh, and then we have states where we've not heard of education become a priority at all. Right, And right. those places like I think where the I mean, it's a good and a bad thing in a way, because if it is somebody who's really driven and has the power to make that change, we've seen it happen. But where that will has not existed or where for the person and the group of people, decision makers, if it's Mm. not been a priority, it's not Mm. been something that has been taken up as such. And yeah, so seen both of those. And I think a second realization was just majorly that partnerships and allies are very crucial. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, there were state governments and um, where a lot of NGOs people organizations both you know just individuals interested in supporting the state and also where there was openness to accept those new ideas to try things right. out to get that support and where people were willing to partner uh, mm-hmm. and sort of provide it there were some of those instances as well and then there were other areas which were more closed doors where mm-hmm. difficult to get access uh, not as much of an openness to accept new ideas there and so saw so both of those situations and I think yeah, so. Everything is political and then partnerships and allies are crucial. Were like two big takeaways from.
0: Right. But I I think you've raised a sort of important point um, because one of the conversations that was definitely happening during the time when we were talking about, okay, should schools reopen? Right. Just around that question itself. One of the big questions that came up was how much should we decentralize this? And this is, of course, a larger policy question. We're constantly an implementation question, right? Where we're constantly asking ourselves. So, what you were talking about in terms of, you know, it's it's very different to talk about getting children to their own school versus the state at scale, and then, um, you know, I mean, all of the examples you sort of spoke about kind of have to balance between those two things right even when you say there are if there are passionate people so many things can happen uh versus when not so at what point of time or like at what level do you think that decentralization becomes important or where do you sort of stand on that on that question
1: i think i'm a firm believer in decentralization uh but when we talk of decentralization then it has to be if we look at like 73rd 74th amendment panchayat uh, the entire decentralization conversation there, then it has yeah. to be fund function and functionary that gets transferred. Mm. So more often than not, what I've seen is that the function gets transferred, the fund and the functionary don't. <laughs> and uh, that then is not a viable model for anybody to work in terms of decentralization, right? So you have to have authority mm. over uh, that with checks and balances in place, obviously, Yeah, yeah. you know, how you are, uh, Carrying out the actual work and who it is benefiting, et cetera. So, making sure that the intent is clear, the implementation is clear, the checks and balances are in place, but all three of them have to transfer if Mm. we're talking about decentralization. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, I also feel like there are certain decisions that, as a union uh, government, we should be having certain measures that can get standardized or decision making that is done across the board while. Taking consider like taking into consideration at least suggestions or ideas from everybody. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So mm-hmm. if it
1: is a crisis or a pandemic situation, you need somebody who's in charge. It can be somebody in the union government. It can be a state government, depending on what the issue or the topic is. Right? Mm-hmm. But uh, those things need to be clearly defined. So what happened in this situation with say education being on the concurrent list? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of left in the air. You. You decide some things, but there is a Deeksha portal. Do you want to? You should put things online on that. That is a, uh, you know, centrally managed portal. Yeah, yeah. Every teacher should log into that also. But there are state governments creating their own versions,
0: Correct. and there
1: is double, <clears throat> triple amount of work happening. Do we? Mm-hmm. Was it needed? Not. Was there somebody who could have and should have taken a decision? Possibly yes. So I think the with decentralization, uh, the one it leaves certain areas in gray. Mm. and that's where the challenge is so if you can have a more black and white in terms of who's responsible at the end of the day who is that Mm. decision maker for certain areas Mm -hmm -hmm. uh, so have it be both but then for certain topics and particularly in a pandemic yeah or anything of an emergency of sorts like who becomes that end decision maker and how is like the key bit of decentralization is also I mean ownership as well as the voice of that last mile being represented right That is very absolutely, and which is something that I find missing a lot of times Mm. uh, because nobody is asking that child what they want to do. Nobody is asking them at all. They're not there in any conversation, any debate, nowhere. It is adults making that decision for the child. Okay, fair enough. But are we talking to the parents? Yeah. Are we talking to the teacher? So if you're looking at the end unit of the education system, are we talking to the teacher and really identifying where their issues and challenges are and how can we solve for those instead of fitting them into a system?
0: So if we are doing
1: that, then great. Then decentralization is working as it should be because Mm -hmm. it is then incorporating and, you know, it's bottom up and top down. Yeah. Uh, But otherwise this pseudo version of decentralization is a little problematic.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think especially that piece of like ownership, right? And having it clearly defined of who will ultimately make the call so that there should never be the the um, possibility that a call is not made at all. And that yeah. that is genuinely what we saw happen a lot. Um, okay, yeah, no, that, that really helps. And I think this point about the fund and the functionary being sort of transferred as well, I think that's a very simple but important point that we often like have missed out previously, right? Now that we're like talking about out-of-school children particularly right and we've discussed how many of the states did handle it one thing that we are all very clear on is that even though the pandemic has sort of eased down and i don't at least we're hoping it will not come back the way it was um we do know the problem of out-of-school children's tales. And a lot of the children who did drop out or were absent for prolonged periods of time have not really returned to schools, right? And even in some cases where they have, absenteeism maybe continues to be a big problem, especially with, say, for example, children with disabilities. We, you know, did a study and uh, we found that within about a month of them trying to attend online classes. So these were obviously children that already had access to internet, to devices and all of that. But because their content wasn't accessible in some way or the other, Um, they very quickly lost interest right they were just sitting and staring at a screen and not receiving anything and the moment they did that and they were absent for like three four months now that they're back to schools they're still like we've missed out so much it's very difficult for us to actually catch up right so given that what what do you think in your opinion or maybe based on what you're seeing on ground right now should be where the state focuses in trying to bring children back to school or addressing this problem in in a very real way?
1: Right, I mean, out-of-school children, I think, as you rightly pointed out, it was an issue pre-pandemic, it continues to remain an issue post-pandemic. the It's, um, the major difference is, I think the magnitude has increased and uh, a similarity is that the data doesn't capture that, Mm. right? So, even pre-pandemic, when we were looking at the numbers for out-of-school children, I mean, not having data across the board, like publicly available data is a challenge, I think, in multiple spheres, not just this one. But particularly when we look at, like, out-of-school children, there have been multiple efforts under... uh, So previously, uh, under the Raji Shiksha mission, there were these night shelters that were run. Uh, Post that, there were bridge programs that were run. So state literacy mission authorities, um, so RGSM, SLMA, all of these within the education department and then some other Shiksha now as it is, Mm -hmm. were running bridge programs in different uh, states, right? Mm -hmm. And with the intent to bring out-of-school children back into mainstream right. mainstream education, essentially. That was one of the biggest uh, agendas. Yeah. And the second was that can they at least finish 10th and 12th yeah. uh, schooling through open schooling? Mm. So either IGNO or whatever open school access uh, board that is available, mm. can they do that? And I mean, I used to work at a night shelter, um, i taught at a night shelter in raipur and so some of the some of the experiences are coming from there and then some of more what i saw during covid and what mm-hmm. i'm seeing now but uh, there is no clear mapping of these out of school children
2: yeah
1: right that remains single-handedly one of the biggest issues that i've seen yeah. is that there is absolutely no record of uh how many children, even in a given gram panchayat are out of school. Hmm. I'm not saying at a state level, you should have every single, you should actually have data of every single child that's out of school. But even if you want to go as micro, as a village,
2: uh,
1: the gram pradhan there might be able to tell you.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? A vague number. But is it documented anywhere? Do people really are be cognizant of this as a fact published somewhere that, you know, in this particular gram panchayat, there are 50 children who are out of school right right. So, right. And what that leads to then is the rest of the cycle of the problem. So mm-hmm. during Covid, we saw a lot of migration in and out of cities, into villages, back home. people shifted. children who were studying also were moved out of schools, uh, schools at certain points where children were then failing you Mm. know, because they couldn't catch up to education. So in the first year, I think nobody particularly would have failed children in terms of even if they did pass exams and stuff like that, there was considerations there. But Mm. in those years that follow, uh, so last year and then this year, uh, children have been facing that sort of an issue as well, right? Mm. So I mean, either they drop out because they don't understand to the point that you were making earlier, like now they're unable to catch up. Yeah. Uh, So that's another reason why they're dropping out in the middle of school years now. Yeah. Right. And then the there's a whole gendered component to it. Absolutely.
2: right?
1: So once children are out of the schooling system, uh, girls particularly even more difficult to get them back into yeah. uh, the system again because now they used to be doing the housework or you know the other issues that are associated with girls not being part of the schooling system already, mm-hmm. early marriages etc. So one area which I feel we should tap into mm-hmm. and we've not as a i mean as a more of a systemic effort right not right. just i'm talking about one organization doing this or not but tapping into the community mm-hmm. to ensure that this is recorded and then taken up mm-hmm. as an important issue we've not been able to do that right mm-hmm. so i know if there's a child in my house who's out of school right if i want to get the child into school or if i want to just report that that child is out of school right, right now i have no way of doing that right uh I don't feel empowered enough to go and just report that to somebody hmm. in the education space or to uh, an elected representative of my own volition,
2: right.
1: uh, which is a separate topic and should be worked on. But even here, like there's no systemic uh, play- things in place, hmm. no hmm. measures in place to ensure that people are coming up with that or how are we collecting that data. Right. Right. So it often feels like, and the second aspect of that, the problem is that it feels like it's just a big blot on and say that state's uh, name in terms of saying, okay, you know, so bad. Look at you. So many children are out of school. Right. And so we don't often get the real picture from the ground. But Correct. Uh, bridge programs, I think there are, again, teaching at the right level. So if you yeah. look at the work, multiple organizations that talk of, you know, some of these things, say Pratham's yeah. teaching at the right level work. Uh, the Stap India Foundation that's working on particularly out-of-school children and their re-entry into schools, Mm -hmm. uh, multiple organizations that are doing work on out-of-school children and Mm -hmm. their realization is this, that you know, you should be working with the community for this. Right. Can we involve the religious communities Mm -hmm. as well, right? So can we have a Pandit and a Malvi and a Padri speaking about these things? And can they also be encouraging that within their communities? How can this become Mm -hmm. a more community driven approach Mm -hmm. where we are we want to highlight that, okay, so many of our children are out of school and they should be in school.
0: Right. And the
1: government also then creating those systemic measures where mm-hmm. one, it can be reported and second, how do we accommodate? So, right. in terms of programs, I think, uh, Nisha, there are so many out there, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't comment on like that. We don't need to reinvent the wheel there. Yeah. Uh, there is <laughs> there is a lot that's being done. There's a lot of research on this, on how best to get remedial education for children, get how out. to... Uh, age-appropriate learning, grade-appropriate learning, and there's a lot being said and done on that. So I think if we were to pick up from multiple programs and sort of just create one that is obviously contextualized to the state and the nature of the demography, I think uh, that would work. So mm, yeah, apart from that, I think just getting in expertise
2: mm-hmm.
1: is something that I feel state governments can do mm-hmm. on this particular issue, uh, getting in people who've done work in this space. Right. Who know what they're doing, making it a political agenda, if mm. I can say that. right? It mm. has to be a political agenda. It has to be something that everybody is talking about.
0: Right. Right.
1: And that it is not a matter of shame, but it is something that we need to rectify.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think specifically the piece on sort of making it a community-led mission, right? And something that we're all targeting as a positive thing rather than trying to hide away what the actual numbers are. And I think there is precedence for this in a lot of other movements that we have done that have been sort of ground up, largely, I think, in health and, you know, around vaccination and stuff, a lot of those yeah. uh, successes Tabuthi. that India has had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have come from, you know, these kinds of movements. So yeah, I, I, I think that's a really uh, important point. Um, And sort of along similar lines. So Going ahead, um, you know, is there is Indus Action uh, focusing on anything very specific with respect to education and the well being of children? And what, what does that look like for, you know, the coming, maybe the, the major priority when it comes to this area?
1: Yeah, I think education and uh, well being of children, mostly points that I have already covered. Like, yeah, we're trying to look at well being of the ch- family and yeah. which is impacting the well being of the child. So, indirectly through that. Uh, during COVID, we also worked on some mental health efforts for children, uh, you know, helplines that were set up for school children with state governments to kind of call, speak, you know, if they're feeling okay, not, etc. So there were some mm-hmm. of those efforts during uh, that time, but those have died down now.
2: Right. Uh,
1: yeah, education and children, I think our 121 c work continues to remain a huge part of our portfolio where we're also trying to look at children who were impacted through COVID, right? So mm. who've lost either the breadwinner of the family or uh, both parents. Yeah, And, you know, uh, the state also has, I mean, the nationally, that has been a topic that has come up. All states are mandated to sort of ensure that children get admission yeah. uh, under this category and have a specific focus on them. So, yeah, mm. so that's one piece that we look at uh, Apart from that, I think looking more critically at different categories of vulnerability. Mm. So we've been looking at children with special needs mm-hmm. uh, and how does access to schooling for them look like, right? right? So like just as starters, and we we are focusing a lot more on access right now uh, than what happens beyond that. Yeah. Uh, because just the first step of access in itself is a problem. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We don't even out of, you know, about 85,000 seats, mm-hmm. say, uh, under 12, we barely have, I think, 10 children with disabilities studying or not even if I can, I have to check the exact number, but this, right. it is really, really low, like it's yeah. 0. 0 point something percentage, right. right? And so where do you start to fix that problem? It's a chicken right. and egg problem. Does the school need to have infrastructure first? Exactly. And then the child yeah. goes there? Or should there be demand? And then the school will kind of follow? So mm. how are broad RT norms in itself being followed, right? Mm. Are there am? Mm. I mean if you're talking only of uh physical disability and that mm. too for children who need uh wheelchairs access, etc., right? So only for that one narrow subsection mm. are there measures in place. Correct. Um, and there are like eighteen types of disability. How do you even yeah. get started about a school having all of those? So yeah. like children with special needs is one, uh, children need of care and protection. So yeah. there there are orphans. Uh, Children that have been given up to the state, etc. How are they being addressed and looked at? Because Mm -hmm. these are further categories of vulnerability Mm -hmm. within, like, a subset of children who might be vulnerable. This is even the most highly prioritized, or PVTGs, for instance. Um, How are we looking at those tribal groups and uh, where can the system support them? Right, uh, but not take over everything that they know about. You know their uh, lives even yeah. as part of social uh, norms etc so that's ongoing work though I mean that's things, areas we're looking at focusing on uh, women climate change yeah certain areas that will have an incidental impact on the child obviously
0: yeah absolutely okay okay and then I think uh, because we're, we're almost reaching that one hour mark as well so I want to conclude with just like a very quick step back but so during covid you know as sort of researchers practitioners we've been in this space for a little bit of time and our organizations obviously work in very different ways uh but maybe ultimately want to converge on solving similar problems right uh but how do you think we did during the pandemic like where did we sort of drop the ball or what more could we have done right being invested in this space in in such a big way um uh...
1: I think as, I mean, as researchers, sometimes the one challenge, if I can be absolutely candid, uh, has been that we're more interested in the research than in the outcome of what that could lead to. So yeah. say publishing a, a, report is more valuable than actually ensuring that that report, who does it reach? Who is yeah. it intended for, uh, the urgency of, um, the outcomes in some places was what I felt could have been slightly different. Yeah. Right. Uh, what could our focus areas have changed at that point mm-hmm. and been more on, okay, at hand, this is what's needed now. Yeah. Can we act first and then look at that? Like that's one area I felt at a couple of places uh, that that did happen. Uh, I think a second area where, and this is something uh, that someone from the community, like we were working with a community on uh, ration distribution. And mm-hmm. uh, the this lady told me, she was like, oh, do you don't want to photo or what? And I was like, yes. photo what? And she was like, no, no, oh, you're actually goodness. giving us something like for each one of us. So you want us all to just stand there and take a picture with you and for you to put up. And I was just it's like, I didn't know what thinking. to say to her because she was not wrong she's at not, all.
0: No.
2: Uh,
1: yeah. So... That just hit me in the face that day. And I was like, I mean, while we do take pictures, obviously for our, to document what efforts have happened, to talk about it, etc. But have we made it such a social media game alone that it is more about the picture than the effort? Yeah. uh, Was something that hit me. And a third was then just, are we talking about the sort of, time exploitation of the communities in terms of data access research i mean data privacy so is out of the window Flex right now like i don't enough. even know if i want to touch that topic but when we're talking of just the amount of time investment that people and communities have done if you've done research right for yeah. instance can i just take from you mm. can i borrow exactly. from your research and just talk about it and build off of that instead of having to do it again and again from scratch can we not be we are very territorial And not collaborative, except while talking on, you know, uh, a fancy forum. Be like, yes, yes, we should definitely all collaborate. (laughs) But then, when it comes down to the brass tacks, are we that collaborative? Yeah. Are we willing to share information? Uh, Who is at the end of the day benefiting from this, right? Yeah. If it is the community, then they're definitely not benefiting from you and me doing research separately. Absolutely. Uh, Can there be that collaboration between the researchers and practitioners, between Mm. academicians, and then policymakers? Where is that? Uh, when it comes to really doing the work. So I think those are a few areas, particularly in time of a crisis or a pandemic that struck out more so
2: Mm. uh,
1: than they would in the day-to-day otherwise. Yeah, yeah, these three. But I think I'd I'd also want to highlight one or two points which we did do well Mm. on. Uh, I think there were a lot of collaborations and collaboratives that were formed during this time to do some of what I was mentioning in the third point, yeah. like co- compound their efforts. So during mm-hmm. our also like the rapid response COVID response that we worked on in the first wave, I remember reaching out to people. Like I reached out to a youth Congress person in Jammu and Kashmir, and a uh, Shiv Sena worker in Maharashtra, and uh, there was an RSS person in Ayodhya who helped us. Like it was just across the board, a political, uh, yeah, like extremely extremely it it brought out the humaneness I feel more so yeah. of people yeah. and that is something that I saw everywhere be it NGOs be it people who were on the ground were well yeah. connected and helping each other out so I feel like it's that layer that was a little removed from the ground is where there were a little more of uh the challenges that I mentioned were happening.
0: right absolutely no I think that that's extremely important and I think there was, um, you know, a lot of organizations have spoken about moving towards sort of more action-oriented approaches, which, of course, Action has been doing for a very long time. Um, and, you know, that's what you call yourself the do th- tank and not the think tank, right? So, um, I mean, I think there is, there is, it was a huge reminder of how important that aspect is. And I think there is also, like you said, you know, a larger sort of incentive system that needs to be reviewed uh, because I think we've all been in that position as researchers where someone from the community says something like you know okay you keep coming here and uh, taking information from us why don't you just sit here and teach our kids you know like I've, I've got that before and they're, I mean they're 100% right I mean sure I can be like I'm not a teacher I, I won't do good but they're like that's the I mean what's the counter right so yeah, I think, I think th- these are all extremely important points and especially that last bit, I think at the end of this series, I'm going to take that and make that a separate snippet, you know, just to like everyone and what they said about how as researchers, we need to be doing better. I think that's a whole other conversation that we need to have, um, even when we're like collaborating and learning from each other. All good? Okay, amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Adri. It was a pleasure and I feel like we've learned a lot. Um, and yeah, if there's you know anything else, we can have a second conversation, I hope. But uh, this, this has been great. So thank you so much for joining us. This podcast is produced by the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy under the Kotak Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Program. The Kotak Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Program is a CSR initiative by Kotak Mahindra Bank Limited. This podcast is based and born from Vidhi's report, Clearing the Air, a synthesized mapping of -of out-of-school children during COVID-19 in India. This report is produced under funding received from Voltas Limited as part of their CSR initiative. Video design and editing by Asad Ali. Illustration by Hitesh Sonar.